And we'll thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, again, if you would turn your eyes to 1 Peter and chapter 2. I'll start reading in a moment from chapter, chapter 2, verse 11. I'd like to introduce um, John Hayward um, before he comes up and before I read the word. Um, he, <laughs> yeah, sorry about that. Um, he is the senior, or the associate pastor now at Grace Community Church, which planted Crosspoint um, 11 years ago. Um, so he has graciously given up some of his time to come and uh, look at the word with us this morning. So be sure to thank him on your way out. Um, we're looking forward to hearing from him this morning. Would you look at God's word now? Verse 11 of 1 Peter chapter 2. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the, among the Gentiles honorable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor as supreme or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. For this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of the foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but live as servants of God. Honor everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the emperor. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing. When, mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it? If when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure. But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of God. Thanks. Well, brothers and sisters of Cross Point, it's a great joy for me to be with you here today. For all those of you who are one time part of Grace, we still miss you, love you. For those of you who have come to be the cross point since it was planted. That's why we planted cross point, so that God's kingdom would continue to advance and grow. And so you, you, ha you ha have to know you have such a fond affection uh, in my uh, place in my heart, uh, everyone here at cross point. It's a really a great privilege and joy for me to be here this morning. Uh, my wife would love to be here with you as well, Katie, uh, but her father is ailing and she, he's around the Detroit area, so she's up there with her sister this weekend, so that's why she's not with me. Great time for me to be here with you, but I have to start with kind of a discouraging question for you to consider. And that is, how is sin 
most often displayed in your life? Just think about last week. What were some ways that you dishonored God through your actions, through your words, or through your attitudes? Was it greed, envy, pride, lust, discontentment, an outburst of anger, gossip, unkind words, a lack of forgiveness, being disrespectful, being demanding, stealing, drunkenness, gluttony, immorality, or just plain old selfishness, not willing to give your life away for the sake of others. That list is kind of discouraging, right? And we could keep going on with it. The, the list of potential sins seems almost limitless. And trying to fight against sin can quickly lead to feelings of exhaustion and condemnation. My goal this morning is to help us with our struggle against sin by turning our attention to a single verse that will help us. And it's a verse about what Christ has done for us. Am I on? There we go. And it's 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24, which says of Christ, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. The point that Peter is making in this verse, the point of our study this morning will be that Jesus Christ died for our sins so that we might die to sin and live a righteous life. This verse is part of a section in Peter's letter where he's calling his readers to not retaliate against unjust suffering. Verse 18, Peter talks about those who have unjust masters, but then he talks, uh, begins talking more broadly about people who experience any kind of injustice. Writes in verse 20, if when you do good and you suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you've been called, that is, you've been called to put up with unjust suffering. Why? Because Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example that you might follow in his sight. What did Jesus do? He committed no sin. There was no deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile. When he suffered, he did not retaliate, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. Friends, what this means is that if we claim to be followers of Christ, then we need to pattern our lives after his. Our words and our behaviors need to be like Jesus. He is to be our example. However, Jesus is not only or even primarily our example. Because before he can be our example, he first and foremost must be our Savior. And that's what we're going to understand today, that we need to appreciate what Jesus Christ has done for us as our Savior so that we can consistently follow him as our example. In verse 21, as Peter prepares to point to Jesus as the ultimate example of someone who experienced mistreatment without retaliation, he doesn't say simply that Christ suffered, leaving an example to follow in his steps. He says, Christ suffered for you. The, the little preposition there means for your sake, for your benefit. Peter's asserting that through Jesus' suffering, his death on the cross, that was for the benefit of his people. And then in verse 24, Peter explains how the suffering and death of Jesus Christ benefits us. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree 
so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Using this verse, we'll consider two aspects of Christ's death. First, the substitutionary nature of it. He himself bore our sins in his body. And then secondly, the transformative effect that it has, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. Peter's statement about Christ, that he bore our sins, is taken from Isaiah chapter 53, as Nick read earlier. And several other phrases that Peter uses also come from Isaiah chapter 53, which is about God's suffering servant. And clearly Peter has been meditating on how Isaiah's description of the suffering servant is fulfilled in Christ. In verse 9, Isaiah writes, there was no deceit in his mouth. And Peter quotes that in verse 22. Then in verse 5, uh, Isaiah 53, 5, he says, uh, by his wounds we are healed. In verse 6, you were straying like lost sheep. And Peter picks up on both of those that we're going to talk about a little bit later in verse 24 and verse 25. It's the other phrase, though, that I want us to focus on now. It's taken from Isaiah chapter 53, verse 12. He poured out his soul to death. He was numbered with transgressors, yet he bore the sin of many. Peter's saying that Christ, when he went to the cross, bore our sins. And this bearing refers to enduring the guilt or punishment. It's uh, found, the, the word in the Old Testament is found in uh, Genesis chapter 4, where uh, after Cain is told that he's going to be punished for killing his brother Abel, he says to the Lord, my punishment is greater than I can bear. And in Leviticus chapter 5, Moses states that if anyone sins doing any of the things that by the Lord's command he ought not do, he shall bear his iniquity. So to bear means to endure the guilt or punishment of sin. But notice Isaiah says about the servant, and Peter applies to Christ, he bore the guilt and the punishment not of his own sin, but the sin of others. We can see this from the beginning of what Peter says, beginning of verse 22. He committed no sin. There was no deceit in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he didn't threaten. He continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. Paul expresses that same idea in 2 Corinthians 5, uh, verse 21. He says that God made him, Christ, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. Christ was sinless. He always did what was pleasing to the Father. Never once in his entire earthly life did he say or do or even think anything that was dishonoring. And yet the perfect Son of God willingly took our sins upon himself. He bore our sins in his body on the tree. What was transferred to Christ was not the the moral quality of our sin, that is, he did not become sinful. Instead, it was the legal consequences of our sin. He voluntarily accepted all the punishment, all the guilt, all the condemnation that you and I deserve for our sins. In other words, Jesus became our substitute. And as our substitute, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. The Greek word that is used for tree is zulon, 
And Zulon doesn't refer to a large plant covered with leaves you find in the forest. Rather, Zulon refers to anything made of wood. We find it several places in the New Testament. First uh, Corinthians chapter 3, when he's talking about how pers- people are going to be judged for the sake of how they uh, served in the church on the Day of Judgment, how they're going to be evaluated. Paul writes, now if any man builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, or wood, Zulon, hay or straw, each man's work is going to become evident because the fire of the day will test it. The normal Greek word for cross is stauros. To give just one example of its many uses in the New Testament, Philippians chapter 2, Christ himself became obedient by, uh, to the point of death, even death on a cross, a stauros. So we need to ask ourselves, why when Peter is clearly talking about Jesus dying on the cross, why does he use this generic term, wood, instead of the more technical, specific term, stauros? He uses the word wood or tree because he's drawing his reader's attention to the significance of Christ's death. In Deuteronomy chapter 21, Moses writes, If a man has committed a crime punishable by death and he's put to death, you shall hang him on a tree. His body shall not remain on the tree overnight. You shall bury him the same day. For a hanged man is under a curse of God. The Old Testament is written in Hebrew, but by the time of the New Testament, it's already been translated into Greek. And the Greek word for tree here is, not surprisingly, zulon. You shall hang him on a Zulon, which is to indicate he's being cursed by God. And that's the point Peter wants us to understand concerning Jesus' death. Crucifixion was an incredibly cruel and torturous form of public execution, perhaps the the worst form of execution ever developed by the uh, thoughts of man. Maybe you've seen the movie The Passion of the Christ. Mel Gibson in that movie is trying to portray just how horrible crucifixion was. And he does a pretty good job. But when we watch that movie, we need to remember that as terrible and intense as Jesus' physical suffering was on the cross, it was nothing. It was infinitesimally small. It was like a a little particle of dust on a scale compared to the spiritual suffering that Jesus endured on the cross, because when he was on the cross, he was experiencing the curse of God, the curse that we deserve. Paul's going to explain this in Galatians chapter 3. He writes, It is written, now he's going to quote from Deuteronomy chapter 27, Cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of law to do them. Those who want to earn God's acceptance, be welcomed into his presence through what they do, need to obey all of God's commands all the time. Before I became a Christian, I had this picture in my mind that there was a scale. And God had my good deeds on one side and my bad deeds on the other, and I was trying to, you know, get things tilted in my favor. So I tried to be a good kid. This verse tells me that does not work. You have to get 100%. You have to always obey all of God's laws. And if not, you're under a curse. And that curse involves being separated from God. Matthew chapter 25, Jesus tells a parable about the day of judgment. 
when like a shepherd separating sheep from goats, he'll separate people into two groups. To the sheep, he'll say, welcome into the kingdom, the kingdom that's been prepared for you from the foundation of the world. To the other group, to the goats, he will say, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. This is what it means to be cursed by God, to be separated from God, to be sent to hell forever. And that's the curse that Jesus rescues us from. Galatians 3, verse 13, Peter st- Paul states, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. How? He became a curse for us. For it is written, now he's going to quote the, this verse we just looked at, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. Friends, on the cross, Jesus Christ became a curse for us. He was our substitute. He endured the wrath of God and the curse of God so that we don't have to. We began our study today, I ask you to consider what are some ways that you uh, most often see sin displayed in your life? Evil thoughts, unkind words, unloving actions. What you need to know is those sins aren't only unpleasant to the people around you, maybe even annoying to you yourself. They put you under the curse of God. But if you look to Christ, call on Him as Lord and Savior, then all of your sins, no matter how many, no matter how shameful, no matter how wicked every one of them you have ever committed or will ever commit, have been transferred to Christ. And that's why we can sing, as we did earlier, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. You know, you you come across that verse and you think, what in the world is going to be blissful about sin? (laughs) Why am I going to be happy singing about my sin? Well, what makes me happy about singing about my sin is the glorious thought that that sin, not in part, but the whole, all of it, 100% of it is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord, oh, my soul. How wonderful is that? Christ bore your sins in his body on the tree. He endured the curse of God that involves alienation and separation from God so that you can be welcomed into God's presence forever. Peter's going to say in the next chapter, chapter 3, verse 18, Christ suffered once for sins, the righteous one for the unrighteous many. Why? That he might bring us to God. No matter how many good deeds we do, no matter how many religious acts we perform, no matter how much moral improvement we make, none of those things allow us to go into God's presence based on our merit and goodness. Instead, we are brought into God's presence because of Christ, because of his sacrificial death on the cross. He fully paid the penalty our sins deserve. And therefore, as the author of Hebrews declares, Hebrews 10 verse 19, we have confidence to enter the most holy place. As we have entered, confidence to enter the very presence of God, we can go into the heavenly throne room. How? By the blood of Jesus. Don't go walking into the White House. Don't go walking into the governor's mansion. You're going to get arrested. But you can go into the throne room of the king of heaven because of Christ. Do you believe that? 
Do you, do you have confidence? Can you say with confidence, I can boldly go to the throne of God? Do you have confidence that the moment you die, you will wake in God's presence and he will have his arms outreached, wet, ready to welcome you into his presence forever? If you don't have that confidence, but you want to, I invite you to talk with me, talk with Pastor Nick, talk with one of the elders after church so we can discuss more what it means for Christ to bear your sins in his body on the tree. Because Jesus did that, he is our substitute. We place our faith in him. We're freed forever from all the guilt and all the penalty of our sin. We are no longer under divine curse. We will never, ever face God's condemnation. We will only ever see a smiling face and welcoming arms. But there's more. They're like a commercial, right? But, but, but wait, there's more. You might want to buy it already, but I've got something even better to tell you. Not only is the, the penalty of our sin dealt with, but the dominion or the controlling power of our sin has been dealt with as well. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. This is the transformative effect of Christ's death. Let's think about what this transformative effect involves. And we'll begin by making three observations about this phrase, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. First, note that this is a statement, it's not a command. When you read the Bible, it's very helpful to distinguish in your mind the difference between an indicative and an imperative. Sorry for the grammar lesson. Those of you who are just getting back to school, like, oh man, I thought, I, I thought that was Friday. I have to do grammar on Sunday. Yeah, so, so an indicative is a statement about what is true. An imperative is a command telling us what to do. In this verse, Peter is not issuing a command. He's not telling us to put sin to death. Now, the Bible does contain commands like that. And even in this section of the letter, Peter uh, tells his leaders, uh, readers to actively resist sin. Verse 11, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. We're going to look at that verse a little bit more in just a minute. That's an instruction. It's a command. Verse 24 is not like that. In this verse, Peter's not calling us to do something. He's telling us what's true. What's true about us is that we have died to sin. The second observation we make is this is something that has already happened. Because Peter's not only issuing a command, uh, issuing a, a statement about what's true, but he's saying it happened in the past. Now, this isn't completely evident from uh, the... I'm, I'm reading from the English Standard Version, and it says that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, and that, that we might die to sin sounds like, well, are you talking about something that could happen in the future? The Greek is much clearer, and the, the New King James Version actually has the best translation, I think, of the phrase, that we having died to sin, might live to righteousness. So Peter's saying, this is true of you, and it's already happened. It's not something that's going to happen in the future. It's already happened. The third thing we notice in this phrase is that our death to sin is inseparably linked to living for righteousness. 
And again, this is not as clear in the English Standard Version as in the King James. English Standard Version, that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. Sounds like it could be two different things, but the word and isn't in Greek. The, 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 the translators supplied the word and. King James is better than King James. That we, having died to sin, might live to righteousness. So these are two separate things, uh, two distinct things rather, but not separate. Uh, think of them like two sides of the same coin. Two sides are distinct, not separate. And so it is those who die to sin will live for righteousness. So the, for the Christian, we can say death to sin is a fact. It's already happened, and it results in living a righteous life. Okay, so far so good. But we still might want to ask, so what, what, what exactly does it mean that I died to sin? Now, what it doesn't mean, what I wish it meant, but it doesn't mean, is we stop sinning. Wouldn't that be awesome to stop sinning? I think, I, I get so excited about going to heaven, about Christ coming back, that, you know, the, in my mind, the two best things about heaven, number one is Jesus, number two is no sin. After that, everything else is just a bonus. Uh, but I get to see Jesus, I don't have to deal with sin anymore, that's going to be spectacular. So, when it says that we died to sin, it, it clearly doesn't mean that we stopped sinning, the Bible teaches that. Our own experience confirms it. Uh, for some Bible references, you can look at um, 1 John chapter 1, verse 8. If we say we have no sin, we're deceiving ourselves. We, we've just fooled ourselves. If, if we somehow think, oh, I'm not sinning anymore. Oh, uh, yes, you are. Just ask your spouse or your friend. They'll, they'll fill you in. Um, and in a verse we referenced earlier, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11, Beloved, I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Well, that certainly doesn't sound like sin's not around anymore. I mean, it's still, uh, if, I, if I have to listen to this command to abstain and this battle is still going on, then clearly the impulse to sin has not ended. So this verse implies sin is still alive in us and it's waging war against us. It's actively fighting against us, making us do things we really don't want to do. Paul talks about this in Romans chapter 7. He acknowledges this internal war. He writes, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Paul is saying, if you cut me open, you'd look in my heart, what you'd find is I have a genuine desire to do what God's word says. I really want to obey him. But I see in my members another law. This isn't, this isn't a law like a rule. This is a law like a principle, like a law of gravity. I see this principle that's waging war against the law of my mind, making me captive to the law, the principle of sin that dwells in my members. You, do you feel, Paul? I feel that every single day. So if sin is still active within us, if it's waging war for control in us, then in what sense have we died to it? We've died to its absolute reigning power. We, we sang about this at the beginning of the service. He breaks the power of canceled sin and sets the prisoner free. That's a wonderful line because he's saying that through Christ, not only has the guilt of our sin been canceled, which is basically the first part of our message today, but the power of sin has been broken. 
sin is still present within us. Its presence isn't going to be eradicated until Christ returns or calls us home. But it no longer has absolute dominion over us. Sin may still be a bully. It's no longer our king. We can think of our current relationship with sin in terms of what happened during World War II between D-Day and V-E Day. So D-Day occurred June 6, 1944. That's when about 1,000 ships stormed the beaches of Normandy. 200,000 soldiers poured out of these boats and uh, in, moving into this entrenched position that the, the Germans and the Axis power had held. After the success of that day, there were many military observers and politicians who knew that now it's really just a matter of time until Germany is going to be forced to surrender, which it did. About a year later, May 8, 1945, we call that VE Day, Victory in Europe. So even though victory was a foregone conclusion after D-Day, there was still lots of fighting. Germany and the Axis powers were still waging war until VE Day. And so it is with us in our battle against sin. The Christian's D-Day occurred on Good Friday when Jesus Christ bore our sins in his body on the cross. On that day, sin was decisively defeated, but it was not eradicated. And so we have to continue fighting against it. As we think about how we've died to sin, it might be helpful to consider what the essence of sin is. And in this passage, Peter gives us some insight on that. Because after saying Christ bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, he continues, by his wounds you have been healed. And as I said, that's, that's a quote from Isaiah chapter 53, verse And Peter's again speaking in the past tense, just as he did in the previous phrase. You have died to sins and you have been healed. After saying you have been healed, Peter makes it clear he doesn't have physical healing in mind. He has spiritual healing in mind because then he quotes in verse 25 another verse from Isaiah. You were straying like sheep, but now you return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. So in these verses, Peter is saying that our death to sin is a kind of healing. And healing from sin involves no longer straying from God, but instead turning to Him as our shepherd. Therefore, we can think of sin as going astray from God. It's not necessarily, it's not just breaking God's rules, but it's, it's going astray from Him, wanting to be independent of Him. Christopher Watkins has written a book recently called Biblical Critical Theory, and he notes how Adam and Eve chose to live their lives by their own methods, their own determination, rather than God's. And he said, sin is autonomy. Sin is wanting to be independent of God. And friends, that's what Christians have died to. We're no longer enslaved by a desire to live independent of God and do whatever we think is right. That controlling power of sin in our lives has been broken because now we have this new desire to love, trust, and obey God. And friends, if you don't have that new desire, then in all likelihood, you're not a Christian. 
Before I became a Christian, I was a really religious kid. Went to church all the time. Tried to pursue God the best I knew. But in my heart, it was always, I was always keeping score. I was just trying to do enough to, to get on God's good graces, God's good side. When I became a Christian, something changed inside of me. I still had plenty of issues outside of me uh, that took some while to clean up. But inside of me, there's now this new desire. I really want to love and serve and obey God. We, you could hear that in Romans chapter 7, right, from Paul, when he says, I delight in the law of God in my inner being. Right? God does that. When, when we die to sin, we have this new desire to obey God. That's the transformative effect that Christ's death has upon us. And it's only through that transformative effect of Christ as our Savior that we're able, able to follow Him as our example. In this section of Peter's letter, which actually begins all the way back in verse 11, um, chapter 2, verse 11. So the, this section of Peter's letter runs from chapter 2, verse 11, through chapter 3, verse 12. And he begins by saying, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. So he's calling us to godly living. But Christians' lives aren't to just be defined negatively by all the things we don't do. There are things we shouldn't do, but we don't want to primarily be known for what we don't do, but for what we do. And so the, the following instruction is, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father on the day of visitation. This is similar to the instruction that, Peter, uh, that Jesus gives in the Sermon on the Mount. Let your light shine before men that they might see your good works and glorify your Father. Whether that's feeding the hungry, sheltering the homeless, caring for the poor, mentoring disadvantaged youth, helping women in crisis pregnancy, or other acts of kindness, followers of Christ are supposed to be known for the good things we do in the world. Because we're sacrificially giving our lives away in the name of Christ for others. Why? Because of this transforming work that Christ has done in our lives. In the following verses, after verses 11 and 12, uh, Peter gives some other ways that we may not initially think of as doing good, but here are some ways that Christians can go in the world and do good. Surprisingly, the first one he comes up with, the first one he states, is in verse 13, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it's an emperor as supreme or the governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and praise those who do good. And then there's another section, a few verses later. Servants, be subject to your master with all respect, not only to the good and gentle ones, but also to the unjust. If you move into chapter 3, verse 1, it's wives, be subject to your husband. So three times he talks about being subject, being submissive as a way of doing good in the world. How many people like to subject themselves to other people? Nobody, right? Nobody wants to put themselves under anyone else's authority, especially that's the case if there's a government official whose policy I don't agree with or with a boss who's uh, not treating me well. What makes it possible to do that? Why am I even compelled to do that? It's because of the work of Christ in my life. He died for my sins so that I might die to sin and live a righteous life. Now, for Christ's sacrificial, substitutionary death to have its intended effect on us, die to sin, live to righteousness, 
we need to be very purposeful about applying the significance of his death to our lives. Paul speaks of this in Romans chapter 6. In it, he is addressing uh, an issue that's come up that people have said, well, if, if our sin leads to a display of God's grace, I have an idea. Why don't I sin some more so I get more of God's grace? That sounds like a, you know, a five-year-old talking to their parents. They're figuring that one out. Yeah, how am I going to work the angle on this? So, yeah, sin gets grace, so I'm going to sin more so I get grace more. So Paul's, that's what Paul's addressing. Romans 6, verse 1. Are we to continue to sin that grace may abound? Answer, by no means. Why? How can we who died to sin still live in it? So he's using the exact same phrase that Peter does. We have died to sin. And now he's going to explain how that happened. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death, in order that as Christ was raised from the dead, from the glory of the, uh, from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. Paul is stating that it's our union with Christ, symbolized by baptism, through that we have died to sin. And that's because when Jesus Christ went to the cross, he didn't just carry our sins. He carried us. Paul will write in Galatians chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. And Christians have not only been crucified with Christ, they've been raised up with Christ. That's what's pictured in baptism, which you guys just celebrated last week, right? Uh, and when, when I uh, would baptize little ones, younger kids, I would say, now what's going to happen? I, I shouldn't, maybe I shouldn't do this. Well, but what happened if Pastor John left you under the water? And they're like, I have to get this big. I promise I'm not going to do that. But if I left you under the water, what would happen? They, they, they all know the answer. I would die. Right? That's what's going under the water pictures. It's a death to sin. So what's coming out of the water picture? New life. New life in Christ and with Christ. So Paul sets up this truth, this, this indicative, right? You have died to sin. He explains where this death to sin comes from. It comes from union with Christ. And then several verses later in Romans chapter 6, he's going to get to an imperative. So in light of this truth, in light of the fact that you have died to sin, what do you need to do? Verse 11, consider yourselves, count yourselves, think of yourselves as being dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. In effect, what Paul is saying in Romans chapter 6 is, in Christ you are dead to sin, now live like it. And so when there's a marital conflict, when, when there's challenging, uh, challenges raising children, when there's some difficulty at work or with a family member or friend, the, the message we have to remember is, I've died to sin. I, I've died to sin. I, my, my natural response might be to, to lash out in this moment, but, but I don't have to because I've died to sin. This is not pretending. Pretending is a little boy putting on a cape and thinking he's Superman, <laughs> thinking he can fly. That, that's pretending. 
This is not pretending because we really have died to sin in Christ. Christ has broken the power of canceled sin and set us free. And now we need to live like that is true. So friends, if you have called on Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord, then when the impulse of sin rushes upon you like a wild beast, it's waging war against you, it's trying to bully you into disobeying God with selfish thoughts, unkind words, unloving actions, preach to yourself that the controlling power of sin in your life has been defeated, that you have a new desire to honor and obey God because Jesus Christ died for your sins so that you might die to sin and live a righteous life. By his wounds, you have been healed from the disease of sin so that now sin cannot condemn you and unless you allow it to, sin cannot control you. Rejoice in what Jesus Christ accomplished for you on the cross and live every day like it's true. Because he himself, for your sins, in his body, on the cross, so that you might die to sin and live a righteous life. Let's pray. Lord, how I'm thankful for my brothers and sisters here at Cross Point. I'm thankful for the great work that you have done, are doing, will continue to do in and through them. Lord, I pray that this church might be a bright, shining testimony in this neighborhood, in this community to the goodness and glory of your Son. And Father, we're thankful that in Christ we can live a different life. We're not left to our own resources. In Christ we've died to sin. In Christ we can live to righteousness. I pray that my brothers and sisters would indeed live righteous lives that would bring glory to you. And I pray for those here today for whom this is maybe something they're still processing, they're still thinking through. Lord, would you continue to give them insight uh, into the truth of your word and give them a great picture of the goodness and glory of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen.